is David Fear Sr., a 40, who is a 40-year veteran of the employee benefits industry. Dave merged his organization, Shepler and Fear, with Dickerson and the Alera Group in May 2019. Dave's expertise and background are in the areas of, of alternative funding, benefit plan compliance, and group purchasing arrangements. He is also the former president of the National Association of Health Underwriters and the 2015 recipient of the Harold R. Gordon Memorial Award from NAHU as the Health Insurance Person of the Year. So Dave, how are you this morning? I'm great. Thanks, Natalie, for that introduction. It's good to be back. <laughs> good to have you back. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, as uh, you can see on the screen, we're going to be talking today about uh, what advisors and their clients need to know about reference-based pricing. Uh, this is uh, very similar to a presentation I did uh, earlier in the year on reference-based pricing, but we've updated it with some new information and some uh, uh, data that I think you'll be very uh, impressed with. So we'll move ahead and as Natalie said, if you have questions as we go, uh, enter them into the, um, uh, the, the question portion of the uh, program and, and we'll uh, take them uh, at the end. Um, so one of the first uh, issues that, that always come up is, well, why are we even, why are we talking about reference-based pricing? I, you know, I've heard about it, but uh, frankly, I'm not sure I understand it. And so why are we doing that? And, and frankly, I, I think uh, it deserves our attention because reference-based pricing is what I would call the latest strategy by those who purchase or pay for healthcare services and, and are trying to bring uh, the cost of these services under control without turning that responsibility over to the government, uh, like under a single payer system. Um, and I think that's important because, uh, you know, we in the United States uh, continue to have uh, a private uh, healthcare system that that relies on uh, employers to uh, offer and, and pay for uh, health benefit coverage for their employees. I think it's been a good part of our of our economy for uh, well over 50 years and, and we'll continue that way going forward. And so, um, you know, when you, when you talk about what employers have to pay for healthcare, it becomes a very touchy subject because uh, nobody's happy about the fact that the cost of healthcare is, is rising almost twice to three times as fast as the regular rate of inflation. So uh, that's one of the reasons why we want to have this discussion. I think another reason, and a little more controversial in some areas, is we need to talk a little bit about what's called the healthcare OPEC in this country. Some of you uh, are probably old enough to remember what OPEC is, the uh, the oil-producing uh, economic cartel that that uh, jacked up, um, that continues to jack up oil prices uh, from time to time, and and. Um, in, in this country, we, we, have a, we have a similar cartel in the sense that the healthcare industry uh, is, is definitely uh, looking at, at pricing things the way uh, they want to price them and not what we're able to afford. So we're, we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, there, was a, there was an interesting um, book written 
a paper actually written by a, a gentleman by the name of Mike Dendy a few years ago, and he called it the OPEC of healthcare. And and he and he says, you know, up front, he says there is a healthcare OPEC in America, and and then he goes through who all the players are in this. He says, you know, hospitals are are make their own pricing. They're largely unregulated entities. Uh, physicians uh, know that through greater utilization, they can generate uh, more income. Uh, Big Pharma, uh, he, he just called it straight out. He said it's unabated greed. There's no governors on the price uh, that they charge or the profits that they make. Uh, ancillary services such as labs and, and other facilities uh, see that the greater the turmoil in the market, the greater the need for their services. And so they're, they're profiting well. Uh, another area that he is uh, very concerned about are medical device manufacturers and and what you basically have is you know them them making a medical device and I'll take a, a pacemaker as a good example um, and there's a huge distribution markup including commission paid to hospitals and doctors who sell their products who install their products uh, you know in our bodies um, and so these are uh, these are an area that has not been uh, uh, largely looked at um, very closely. And then and then you know he points out that health insurers who are are basically guaranteed a 15 to 20 percent profit margin uh, per the ACAA. And as you probably have heard, you know there's this minimum loss ratio rule that was baked into the ACA that said that small group uh, insurers were allowed up to a 20% profit margin, and large group uh, health insurers were allowed up to a 15% profit margin. Now, that's a gross profit margin, and that means that they have to pay their expenses and, and what have you out of that arrangement. But basically, when the, the law said to health insurers, you know, you, you can have this much of a, a profit, then they certainly have um, a reason to charge more for their, for their product um, when you think about those those types of margins, and so I'm not I'm not faulting any one of these um, uh, you know institutions here, but I'm simply saying that when you look at at how uh, healthcare is accessed and paid for in this country, you see that there are a lot of different players, and they have a lot of different reasons for seeing that the cost continues to rise. Um, and, and that is the problem, is the increasing cost of healthcare costs. We know that since the enactment of Medicare in 1965, the private healthcare system has experienced huge cost increases through no fault of its own. Um, carriers have attempted to bend the, uh, the healthcare cost curve by setting up provider networks which agree to payments of less than billed charges. And you might say, well, so they've, they've agreed to discount their charges. And, and that, that is true. Uh, and carriers have spent a lot of money in setting up these provider networks throughout the country. But the question has to get asked, well, are these networks saving us real money? I mean, I, are we really netting out a savings here? And then uh, the last issue is, well, how is the Medicare system exacerbating the cost of healthcare in the United States? Is there is there something going on there as a result of Medicare being the largest payer and purchaser of healthcare services uh, affecting the private healthcare system um, uh, through uh, what its uh, ability to pay or not pay uh, to providers? So let me, let me kind of uh, give you a, a, a vastly simplified example of 
what we call hospital uh, or cost shifting, specifically in, in the case of a hospital. Um, you know, here's an example of a, a small hospital and uh, it has 100 beds and it operates on a cost of $100,000 a day. In other words, they, they have to charge $1,000 a day per bed in order to uh, meet their operating costs. It's the baseline cost for the hospital to break even. Um, however, uh, what they'll find is that about 75 of those 100 beds are filled with Medicare patients and the government pays the hospital a total of $63,750 a day for those 75 Medicare patients or an average of $850 a day per bed. Um, now this varies from place to place, but this example is, is, is based on actual fact of, of what's going on. So then the hospital then bills out the other 25 beds uh, filled by non-Medicare patients at a higher price in order to make up for the revenue shortfall. So think about it this way, if they have to have $100,000 a day uh, to, to operate, but they're only getting $63,750 a day from Medicare, then that difference of $36,250 a day has to be spread over those other 25 beds, which comes out to a cost of $1,450 a day per bed that commercial insurers, private health plans, or cash pay patients have to pay in order for that hospital to break even. And these hospitals, you know, they're not, they're not in the mindset to just lose money year after year. Even the public hospitals that are owned and operated by a county, they, they, have, to, they have to at least break even. So what this means is that the non-Medicare payers are paying $1,450 a day compared to what Medicare is paying at $850 a day. And ladies and gentlemen, that's a 70% price difference. And that problem is getting worse as a percentage of the population continues to enroll in Medicare and increases. And that's that's my generation. I'm a I'm a baby boomer and I turned 65 last year and I'm not enrolled in Medicare yet, but I will be within a few years. And as that as that percentage of the population continues to increase in Medicare, this problem is just going to get worse for uh, providers in general. So so why is Medicare pricing such a big deal? Well, this is what we know. Most providers charge a different amount depending on who's paying the bill. And as the largest single provider of healthcare services, frankly, it's the federal government who pays the least amount for those services. In other words, they're paying benefits on 116 million people in this country who are enrolled in either Medicare or Medicaid or or whatever you know federal program they're they're involved with and the same is true to a lesser degree for large health insurers and or health plans they pay less for healthcare services based on the volume of services that they purchase but they still pay more than the feds do and so while you've got this uh, you know discounted price for the biggest payers uh, this ends up still ending up uh, with this cost shifting by these providers, especially hospitals. And so they have to inflate the price paid to the non-Medicare payers, which again amounts to 159 million people who have private insurance or they're paying out of their own pocket. And this shifting all started in 1965 with the enactment of Medicare and Medicaid, both of which 
pay far less than the bill charges their healthcare providers. Now, again, I'm not faulting Medicare or Medicaid. I think they're they're good programs and all, but the problem is is that in the in the 50 almost 55 years now that we've had Medicare and Medicaid, you've seen this cost shifting just continue on so that the private sector is now paying substantially more than what the government is paying. So let's talk about the infamous charge master. This is a system used by hospitals um, that has been developed over the last few years. And, and most hospitals, they use this, a fee schedule of services rendered. And this was developed by cost consultants or um, actuaries or whatever you want to call it, consultants. Uh, and they call it the charge master. And you figure that these charges represent the quote retail cost of healthcare services as billed by the hospital or the facility and their physician employees. So that represents in their mind what the retail cost is. That's what they love to be paid if they could get it. And each charge is identified down to its smallest component, you know, a, 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 an aspirin pill, tape, bandages, et cetera. I mean, everything is, is itemized out. Many billing programs assume that these items are included in the typical day of service received in the hospital. But here's the big surprise, and you've probably heard this before. Many hospital bill audits find that there are many billed services that were actually not received by the patient. And so a huge cottage industry grew up doing nothing but hospital bill audits. Uh, they they take these the, the 25 30 page hospital bill that a patient gets they go through this with a with a, a line by line and and they identify the things that were actually uh, issued uh, or used or given to the patient versus things that they were being billed for that the patient never received and there are lots of just amazing stories about this and I don't have time to go into it but but you've you've heard of these stories before most of us in the in the benefits business so it's estimated that less than 20% of purchasers pay for the cost of this retail price while 80% pay at some discounted <coughs> excuse me discounted rate pardon me and so this is the issue is is well, how much of a discounted rate? <coughs> so, reference-based pricing kind of took off after the passage of the Medicare Modernization Act. Now, you know, you can you can be critical of the George Bush uh, administration, Bush two, but. Uh, one thing that they did do that I thought made a, a huge difference was the fact that they passed this Medicare Modernization Act, which had a number of subtle uh, changes, enacted a number of subtle changes in the market. And one of those changes included a provision to change the way that providers are reimbursed for their Medicare patients. So today, the government requires Medicare providers to submit specific cost and pricing data to one of four regional contractors that the government uh, works with. 
and, and, and they authorize reimbursement payment based on what's called a cost plus formula. So in other words, I'm a hospital operating in uh, uh, Fresno County, California. I've, I've agreed to participate in the Medicare program. I accept Medicare patients. And as a result of that, uh, I have to submit to the government on a regular basis, my cost data, what, what my costs of operation are, what my salaries are, how much I pay for my, you know, rent to my land. I mean, all those things that go into what a, a hospital has to charge, the hospital then sends to the government and says, okay, well, this is what we pay for aspirin, okay? It's not what they charge for aspirin, it's what they pay the, um, pharmacy company for aspirin that they dispense to their patients. All of these things uh, are reported to the government. And then, and then the government then reimburses the, the um, uh, provider based on this cost plus formula. So the payments to these providers, this is extremely important, the payments to these providers will vary by a number of different factors, including geographic location, the severity of the condition and the age of the patient. And I'm, you know, I'm not an actuary and I can't go into a lot of specific detail, but these contractors have been, have, have these actuarial um, programs that they have been, they've, they've designed that breaks out these reimbursements on these types of uh, different factors. But here's a fact of what's happening. Prior to the passage of the Medicare Modernization Act, less than 50% of providers were accepting Medicare payments. It got pretty bad. Today, over 90% of providers are accepting Medicare patients uh, payments. And so something happened in, in, in the sense by, by the government setting up this new reimbursement arrangement, it, it made more providers say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to do this. Why? Because they're reimbursing the the providers at their cost plus uh, a, a small profit margin. Okay, and we'll let, we'll talk more about that in just a second. This is extremely important that you know this. So, how does reference-based pricing work? Well, very simply, most arrangements will use Medicare as a reference point to define what a reasonable charge is. You remember the, remember the language in these health insurance policies that we've had, you know, remember usual, customary, and reasonable. Well, now what they're saying is they're, they're not defining usual and customary, they're just defining what reasonable is, and they're defining reasonable as a percentage of what Medicare pays. So it might say, our definition of a reasonable charge is 100% of Medicare, or maybe 130% of Medicare, or 150% of Medicare, maybe even 200% of Medicare. And the point is, is by using uh, Medicare as this reference point to define what a reasonable charge is, now they put the providers in a much different position about what they're gonna charge and what they're going to accept. Typically, the, the Medicare uh, reasonable charges refer to hospital or facility charges, lab and uh, diagnostic charges, medical devices and supplies, and physician and professional services. These are all things that are recognized under Medicare as being eligible expenses. Now, some programs, uh, reference-based pricing programs, actually end up excluding physician services. They, they stay with a PPO plan, 
but they require all others to be subject to this reasonable charge allowance using that Medicare reference price point. So, you know, hospital, facility, devices, supplies, lab, et cetera, not the doctor charges, but they use, they use um, reference-based pricing for the non-physician charges. So here's the key point in all of this, is that a provider agrees to a percentage of the reference point and, very important, not to balance bill the patient for the difference. Because remember, in Medicare, they can't balance bill the patient. When they sign that contract with Medicare and agree to participate in Medicare, they agree not to balance bill the patient. That's why Medicare is so uh, popular with with older people because uh, you know they they don't have to they don't have to worry about getting uh, you know balance billed by the hospital because Medicare says to the hospital uh, and doctor you can't do that. That's a that's a breach of our contract with you. So. Let me share with you some real examples. And, and I didn't make these numbers up. These are, these are examples that we went out and we found. Uh, it shows you how crazy bill charges have become as a result of using the, the charge master. It shows you how much a service really costs as reported to Medicare, to the federal government. Uh, it, it then shows how much profit a provider is making through Medicare and how much more profit a provider makes through, uh, say, a PPO fee schedule. So let's look at some examples of these. The first um, uh, example is a two-day stay in a California hospital, and this was uh, reported back in 2018. Uh, this hospital, and I believe this hospital was based in uh, Southern California. I'm, I'm not sure which county, but but it's pretty indicative of what's what's going on throughout the state. So the, the, the hospital sent out a bill char, a, a, a statement of bill charges for $89,136. That's what the that's what the 20-page hospital bill showed. Okay. Um, meanwhile, the actual cost of services that was reported to the government for those charges came out to $9,000. $827, and I'm not making this up. The, the, the third-party um, uh, auditor who went in on this, on this bill um, looked up that. That's public information, by the way. Um, the Medicare allowance for those charges was $12,775. Um, so you're saying, well, so the hospital's cost was $9,800, and Medicare paid the hospital back Twelve thousand seven seventy-five. Yes, effectively, this hospital was earning about a a thirty percent profit margin on their cost of service. The PPO plan that this person had been enrolled in allowed thirty-six thousand nine hundred and sixty-four dollars. Okay. However, the reference-based pricing company came back, and their negotiated charges were nineteen thousand one hundred and sixty-two dollars. You go. Wow, why is there such a difference? Well, look at it this way. The hospital's costs are here. They're, they're, they would have received $12,000 back from, from Medicare. Obviously, they, they love the PPO allowance because that's, that's um, uh, you know, 36,000 is almost what? Three and a half, four times what their cost was. That's a, that's a nice profit margin. And, um, and, and and when you look at this bill charges, I mean, that's a thousand percent markup. I mean, that's just crazy. 
But again, less than 20% of people end up paying billed charges. Most people pay something less. They are either on a PPO plan or a, a Medicare plan, and that's what's happening. But the reference-based pricing company that was used by this employer, and this was a, a self-insured plan, negotiated these payments at $19,162. And, and folks, this is not an uncommon picture of what's going on. All right, here's another example. This is a pricing variation for inpatient hospital costs, and a third-party administrator reported this data for the 2016-17 plan years. So it's it's about four years old, but in checking back with them, uh, actually in uh, early 2020, I asked them if they if they had similar data for the most recent 18-19 uh, years, and and they said the data hasn't really changed uh, dramatically, but. But here's a good example. They had they had three employers, employer A, B, and C, and then you have the total of all employers. So, you know, em, employer A had total billed charges that year of $879,582. Employer B, $1.9 million. Employer C, $1.8 million. But the total for all three was $4.6 million of billed charges. Okay, that's the, in the prior slide, that was the red line right? The Medicare allowance for those charges, for 4.6 million of bill charges, the Medicare allowance was a little over a million dollars. The PPO allowance was $3.3 million. And the reference-based pricing negotiated charges came in at $1.3 million. So a bit more than Medicare, 30% more than Medicare. Obviously, um, we don't know what uh, I, I don't have the data in here of what the um, the actual cost of the charges were, but we have the Medicare allowance. And again, if the Medicare allowance was 125 or 100, uh, you know, 30, 40 percent of costs, then what you're seeing is that this hospital, uh, you know, was was uh, these hospitals were collectively getting about a 30 percent markup here and they're getting about a, a 70 or 80 percent markup here and they're getting well over a, a 300 percent markup through the the ppo plans again these are three employers from a third-party administrator who had these programs in place uh, in 16 and 17. here's another interesting one and this is two hospitals in the same city in California in 2017, this is the pricing variation for a CAT scan. So uh, Hospital A in, in, in orange, their billed charges were $5,840 for a CAT scan uh, session. Hospital B charged $3,147. Again, two hospitals, same city. I will not tell you what city because you could probably figure out the hospitals if I did. The actual cost of service reported by uh, uh, by the hospitals to the government was 149 and 151 dollars, uh, respectively. And you go, why was there a difference? Well, maybe one hospital was in a different zip code than the other hospital because in many cases uh, the, the the government's cost of servicing permits are, are based on three-digit zip codes. So that could have been it. Uh, the Medicare allowed fee was pretty consistent at $199 or $201. Uh, 
the PPO allowed fee, $2,920 or $1,573, and the reference-based pricing negotiated fee, $348 and $352. Um, that's a substantial difference, obviously, here over here, and certainly um, much closer to the Medicare and, and actual cost of service allowances. Again, CAT scan uh, session, two hospitals, same city. Uh, and, then, and then here's one that I think is interesting, and this is the pricing variation for emergency room physician fees. Uh, this was a national average gained from a TPA who paid over $600 million in claims in the year 2017. And so they, they took all of this claims data and out of it, they, they identified emergency room physician fees. And, and here's what it looked like. Uh, the, the physician fees basically are, are based on two um, uh, severities, moderate severity and high severity. Um, I'm not a doctor and I'm not sure I understand what goes into determining the level of severity, but probably based on how much time the physician had to spend on a particular case. You know, it was a very severe case. They're spending a lot of time, and, you know, et cetera. So here you have an average of $333 for moderate severity or $1,192 for high severity. Those are bill charges. Look at the actual cost of service. This is what the government, this is what these, these, uh, physicians who are all Medicare providers report as being the actual cost of service to the government. This is what the Medicare allowance is. This is what the PPO fee schedule uh, allowance was. And this is what the reference-based pricing negotiated fees look like. And again, these are not, uh, th th these are fairly indicative of, of the way things uh, look time after time. So a lot of providers are still, you know, they're still claiming, well, we lose money when we treat Medicare patients. But the facts, frankly, show otherwise. Uh, Medicare pays providers, again, to cover their costs and earn a modest profit of 25 to 50% for the service rendered. That's, that was part of the Medicare Modernization Act. And that's why so many hospitals and, and, and doctors are now participating again in Medicare. Since 2006, no hospital in the United States has gone out of business because it was not paid enough from Medicare. Yeah, there are probably some hospitals that did go out of business, but they, but it wasn't because they weren't getting enough money from Medicare, all right? Some areas, such as Florida, you see hospitals, medical groups, uh, and such, they advertise to seniors, like this, this billboard, um, and why would they do that? Why would they try to advertise to seniors who are on Medicare if they were losing money? And again, when you think about it, because more than 90% of providers are now accepting Medicare patients compared to less than 50% prior to 2004, uh, you know, what does that mean? How can you claim that you're still losing money, uh, yet you're participating in this program? Uh, again, the government continues to modify their payments based on annual cost data submitted by Medicare providers. So, you know, the reimbursement schedule changes from year to year, changes from quarter to quarter, from what I understand. And, and again, each one of these four different contractors are dealing with separate regions of the country. So, because they know that, you know, healthcare is 
is a very local type thing and you have you have different costs say in the in the western united states than you do in the dense uh, urban populations uh, in the in the east so these are you know these claims that hey they're, they're losing money and and when we treat medicare i'm just i'm sorry i just i just don't see it so what does reference-based pricing work best on? Well, we think the, the number one issue is to curb hospital and facility costs because today Medicare payments are now bundled for many common procedures. In other words, you know, they're not they're not taking those line items, you know, this much for aspirin and this much for bandages and this and that. They're saying, look, in, in, in this procedure to to uh, remove a kidney or, or whatever it is, they bundle all of these services together and say, you're gonna get a bundled payment here for this procedure. And the hospitals accept that. They say, okay, we, we're good with that. And, and, and so instead of starting with the charge master and working our way down, Medicare starts with the cost and works its way up. And as you can see from those earlier slides, there's a big difference between the starting and ending point when you do it that way. We see a lot of um, success in this with regard to medical devices because they're no longer allowing the hospital or physician to mark up the charge. In other words, it eliminates a profit center for them when they install or uh, prescribe a device, okay? And then in the area of diagnostic lab and imaging, Medicare does a very good job of, of sifting through duplication or unneeded tests and also the conflicts between physician-owned or hospital-based services and standalone uh, diagnostic lab and imaging centers. So you'll, you'll see some, some interesting uh, data there. And reference-based pricing basically says, you know, uh, Mr. Hospital uh, Diagnostic uh, Lab Center uh, that's based in a hospital, we're going to pay you what a standalone diagnostic lab and imaging center not owned by a physician, uh, by the way, uh, is going to uh, be reimbursed, and the hospital uh, accepts that. So a big issue is the issue of balance billing and what I call mitigation support. I know nobody likes lawyers and all this and that, but frankly, this is a key part of a reference-based pricing program because all reference-based pricing administrators when they negotiate these fee payments, it includes a provision that prohibits the provider from balance billing the patient. But it's going to happen, it does happen. You, 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 you will commonly get uh, uh, providers who have agreed to a reference-based pricing price point, uh, and they'll still send out a bill and try to balance bill the patient. Um, and when that happens, you know the members report that there are collection attempts uh, and, and they need to report those collection attempts to the administrator as soon as possible. In other words, when they get a balance bill and it says, please pay us you know, this $100,000 that uh, your insurance plan didn't pay, they need to immediately send that to their administrator and say, I just got this bill and what am I supposed to do? I can't pay this. I thought you guys were handling it. And the administrator says, don't worry about it. We've, we've got it. And then the administrator then contacts the patient protection services or the legal defense team from the reference-based pricing contractor. These are the guys that go out, they contact the hospital, they say, we're sorry, but we have an agreement with you to pay you this amount of money for, 
for John Doe's uh, claim here, and you've uh, attempted to balance bill them for this, and that was prohibited under, under our arrangement. And so they, um, they, 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 they'll contact the provider, they'll remind them, they'll review the ID card and the EOB report, and it, this stops the overwhelming majority of balance billing issues. So you gotta know two things. Balance billing is going to happen, and in in you know 95% of the cases, it gets resolved uh, without the patient having to get involved. Um, again, the the patient protection or the legal service de defense team, they will negotiate with the provider to accept the long-term reasonable Medicare Plus rate. And what they do is they use the rules that have been incorporated under the Affordable Care Act and by the uh, Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Studies that, that these providers are already dealing with, which has to do with, with um, not reporting um, uh, to credit agencies and stuff like that. Or if they do, they have to go back to the credit agencies and clean that up. So there are some, some good consumer protections that were included in the ACA, and they use those consumer protections in negotiating with these providers. Um, the provider says, well, look, uh, we, we agreed to 150% of Medicare, but we looked at this and decided it's just not enough. And so they then negotiate with that provider until they come up with a with a, a, a the solution. Maybe it's 175%, and then the provider still agrees, I won't balance bill the difference. Again, this is all done not by the patient, not by the employer, not by their agent, but by the firm, the reference-based pricing firm that has a patient protection and legal defense team. And so the very last resort in this is they go to arbitration or court. And, and here's, the, here's the good news about this. Less than 1% of cases end up there because the providers do not want their pricing structures disclosed in public. This is, again, this is all public information anyway, and uh, they go to court and uh, or arbitration, they have to disclose, you know, that kind of ridiculous, you know, here's your bill for $98,000, and and, uh, and and that represents a 1,000% markup over your costs. You know, how many judges and juries are going to feel like that's a fair number? So these providers, they don't want that end up there, and for that reason, they negotiate that down. And at the end of the day, all attempts to collect this debt are ended, and the adverse credit reporting has to be eliminated by the provider, again, because of the ACA laws uh, in that respect. So here are some, here are some basic considerations, and I'm going to go through this uh, a little bit quicker because I know we're 45 minutes into this deal. So here are some considerations about reference-based pricing. Here are, here are the types of decisions that an employer needs to make about reference-based pricing. What type of program do they want? Do they want a full replacement program where everything will be under reference-based pricing? Or do they want a dual choice where I'll offer a PPO plan and a reference-based pricing plan? Or do they want a hybrid model that says, we'll do reference-based pricing for the hospitals and and medical devices, but we use a PPO model for the doctors. And, and we, see, we see a lot of both of the dual choice and the hybrid models. Um, what benefit and pricing changes are gonna be needed to influence participation in the program? Obviously, 
If I'm an employee and I'm given a choice between a PPO plan and a reference-based pricing plan, uh, are you going to tell the employee there's no cost difference, you can enroll in whatever you want? Well, if I'm the employee, I'd probably just stay with my old PPO. But a lot of employers will say, look, if you enroll in the reference-based pricing plan, it will cost you less money out of your pocket in the form of deductibles and co-payments or less money out of your payroll deduction for your coverage. So you, you need to do some things that will influence them to participate in that. Uh, they need to come up with a definition of reasonable fee, uh, what the percentage of Medicare reimbursement will be. A lot of our clients are using uh, 150% of Medicare as the reasonable fee. Some are as low as 130, and I've had a couple that have been as high as 175%, but that's how they'll define what reasonable fee is in their plan document. Uh, who's gonna handle the provider relations, including the balance conflicts, about balance billing conflicts? And again, that should not be done by the employer. It should be handled by the administrator and the reference-based pricing partner that you, uh, that you hire. They should be doing that. So. You know, provider relations should not be dumped in the in the hands of the employer or certainly on the employee. And then what sort of time frame do we want to implement the plan? You do not implement reference-based pricing overnight. It takes, it sometimes takes months to get this right, to help educate people and providers and stuff about what's going on here. The employer needs to think about how much they want to invest in this implementation program, you know, they're, they're putting together maybe a website that explains this or, or, you know, new collateral material and ID cards, stuff like that. So how much is the employer willing to invest to do that? And then what's the projected return on that investment? Uh, you know, how much will we be able to save um, uh, against how much we've had to spend to, to put this in force? So those are, those are key questions that you as the advisor should be talking to your employer about if they're going to consider this. Uh, again, issues about member education are extremely important. You know, they've got to have a plan document and ID cards that reflect language that what a reasonable fee is now so that both the member and the provider see this up front. Many times uh, you need to develop a frequently asked questions a piece that's included with the ID card as well as website links that include audio and visual instructions and explanations. Again, this is some of the investment that the employer needs to make up front to do this. Uh, and these these things need to be uh, available to both the member and their healthcare provider, because sometimes some of these doctor's offices, they have no idea what this is about. A lot of hospitals do, but, but many doctors don't. And then some HR professionals reporting that they need four to six months of lead time to get this implemented, uh, implemented uh, successfully. Um, there are provider issues that have to be addressed and some large employers will reach out to local providers to see if they will accept a group plan that will pay the quote reasonable fee and they should start with providers that already accept Medicare patients, okay? Uh, again, chances are good that 90, over 90% 90 of providers are accepting Medicare, but that's a, that's a good place to start. They should establish a provider hotline to handle challenges from provider billing offices because there will be challenges and they need to be handled. They have to educate the employees about how to pass along to their providers the information about how their plan now pays a, quote, 
reasonable fee, and we've used that term a lot because it's a it's a legal term that's extremely important, and that how these fees are paid quickly and fairly. They need to understand that the reasonable fee is a factor of Medicare and whatever pricing point has been adopted, you know, 150%, 200%, whatever it is. And then many will transition their providers. They'll start with a hybrid program, as I mentioned, where the facilities, the hospitals are on reference-based pricing, but the PPO, but the physicians are still on a PPO plan in say the first or second year. And then they'll move into a dual choice uh, or, or might move into a dual choice where they've got a full reference-based pricing plan alongside of a PPO plan in perhaps the second or third year, and then move to full replacement within the fourth or fifth year. So in, in meeting and talking to big employers that have done this in the past, this is what they're reporting about how they, how they work with their providers. And then again, balance billing. First and foremost, you have to expect this is going to happen. Okay, just expect that there's going to be balance billing routinely by providers. That's what they do. They they hit that button on the printer and it just prints off the 30-page bill and they put it in the mail and they don't care and they don't think because they weren't informed by anybody about any special uh, uh, you know pricing or anything. Okay, so when they do that, the plan administrator has to have a system in place to handle member calls about the balance billing and they will call and they should call and they should call immediately. The day they get that doggone 20 page bill, they need to call the administrator up and say, hey, I got this bill and they say, yep, send it to us, we'll take care of it, don't worry about it. If the member is sent to collections, then the R uh, reference-based pricing legal advocacy team handles it from there. They do not, They do not dump it back on the employee to solve the problem that they didn't create. They negotiate to see that the reasonable fee is acceptable to both parties, and they indemnify the member. They they say, okay, if you if you agree to this fee, then you agree that uh, you're not going to balance bill. And at the same time, they don't get they don't go back to the administrator and say uh, you have to uh, bill the uh, because because we increase the fee from 150 to 175 percent, uh, the patient will have to pay that. No, 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 no. Not so. The patient is only paying the 150% uh, cost deal, and their their deductibles and copays are based on that, not on the newly uh, higher negotiated one. That that is not um, that is not done. They extract the promise that the provider doesn't balance bill. They contact the credit bureau with documentation that the claim was settled and it needs to come off the member credit history per federal law. And that's very important because this is part of the ACA. In a, and again, in a small number of cases, the legal department will take the matter to arbitration when the promise not to balance bill is broken by the provider after agreement has been reached. So they're, they're prepared to play tough with these guys. They'll play hardball. And that's what you're paying them to do. That's not the employer's responsibility. It's not the employee's responsibility. It's the reference-based pricing team uh, responsibility. So there are a lot of ongoing issues re referencing, uh, regarding reference-based pricing. Uh, you've got to constantly review and modify your plan. So the TPA and the reference-based pricing organization should provide detailed reports showing the pricing and the savings, the utilization of services, any balance billing issues, and any changes and payment recommendations based on certain 
procedures or bundling opportunities. As I as I said before, you know the government's Medicare reimbursement is constantly being adjusted. Again, adjusted by the four different um, contractors that they have in different regions of the country. So you expect that you know that's going to have an impact, positive or negative, on your reference-based pricing plan when Medicare makes changes as well. They need to compare the employer plan to Medicare results and try to keep them parallel. In other words, if if, if Medicare is is consistently paying, say, 130% of, of cost and your reference-based pricing the plan is uh, you know consistently reimbursing, say, 175% of Medicare cost, they need to see if those if those um, uh, ratios uh, stay parallel to one another uh, over time. Uh, they need to address HR issues, including member education and any challenges in that regard. And they need to uh, review provider issues, including education and payment acceptability. So it's it's not necessarily an easy task. And, and I talk to brokers and advisors and I say, you know, that this is the right thing to do for your client, but it's going to require for you. You know, you're you're playing the traffic cop here. You're kind of working with the various parties to see that they're doing things. So a lot of um, a lot of bigger agencies uh, now have um, reference-based pricing specialists within the insurance agency's benefits uh, area to help help with this kind of stuff. Uh, that's something that we um, are prepared to assist agents with as well here at, at Dickerson. So what is reference-based pricing cost? I know a lot of you have been waiting. Well, what does this cost? So there are two types of costs. There's the implementation costs that vary based on the employer commitment to a successful rollout. And our actuarial department can actually help with claim estimates to determine what the uh, return on investment uh, would be on these costs. So if, if we say, well, we, we believe that the cost to implement this is going to be $5,000 uh, roughly, then how much are we going to save uh, in order to offset that? So we can we can assist in that. Then there are ongoing costs that are paid to the reference-based pricing vendor who's signed a specific uh, agreement with the employer and the third-party administrator to provide their services as, as I've outlined already. Again, showing a some will charge a percentage of documented savings, which can be an allowable expense on the stop-loss insurance policy for a self-funded employer, or they'll charge a per-member, per-month fee, which are generally not considered an allowable expense under a stop-loss insurance policy. So there are pros and cons to each one of those types of fees. And um, we generally will shop that out with various reference-based pricing companies and, and show you what, what the options are. Then you've got to compare the ongoing costs to those paid by an employer as a PPO access fee. And when you when you do that, when you say, well, how much am I paying to use a PPO network right now? And how much am I going to pay for reference-based pricing? What you'll see is that those fees are very, very close. And then you need to think about, am I going to get additional savings by having this reference-based pricing plan versus the PPO contracts that I'm already using. And as you saw in the earlier slides, that, that savings can be and is generally uh, substantial over what a PPO is, is generating. And then finally, you need to understand you get what you pay for. You, you need to make sure that you're using a full-service reference-based pricing vendor 
who provides the core services such as price negotiation, uh, et cetera, and then has the legal assistance, the HR support, and the provider relations component in this. Uh, again, there two big things that they, they need to do. They need to provide you with um, the price negotiation at the time of service to enforce your, your definition of reasonable cost, and then make sure that we don't have balanced billing issues and resolve those. Uh, so, you know, do they have a legal staff? Do they have provide HR support? And do they have a provider relations department? And that's very important. And we've seen a couple of our carriers actually change reference-based pricing partners because of that. You know, partner one did not provide the provider relations uh, assistance that was expected. And the second provider came in and said, yeah, that's part of what we'll do. So, you know, they all learn. Again, what you'll see is, is that in reference-based pricing, it will have an effect on health benefit plan rates. And here's an example of, uh, of a proposal that we put out. It's a level-funded plan, and they're offering multi-choice plans. The employer uh, is based in San Jose, California, and they're currently using a BUCA, what I call a BUCA, that's a Blues, United, Cigna, or Aetna PPO network and they're offering a reference-based pricing plan that pays 150% of Medicare, and they offer bronze, silver, and gold benefits. Now, follow me through on this. So plan A is a bronze plan that uses full reference-based pricing based on 150% of Medicare. It has an in-network deductible, $4,500, coinsurance, $5,000, maximum out-of-pocket, $7,900. Frankly, this employer is using this for an HRA, okay? So they're putting an HRA on top of this. They're wrapping it. They have some first dollar benefits for office visits and uh, emergency room, et cetera. But their rates, their, their monthly premium rates, and this group is, uh, I don't know, 30, 40, about 50 people. Look at their premium rate here for this bronze plan, $274.93 a month, an annual cost of $302,820. Now, look over on the far side, here's a gold plan that they offer, and it has a, it's a PPO plan using one of the carrier PPOs, and I won't say who. Uh, it's got a lower deductible, uh, sorry, lower deductible, better coinsurance in, in network, uh, and a lower, slightly lower maximum out of pocket. And the rates on this plan are kind of typical for a gold plan, $472.98 for a single, but a total of $527,000 a year, which is a 74% price increase over this bronze plan, which you, you might expect that, okay? Then the client put in a choice of two silver plans. This silver plan B is reference-based pricing. This silver plan C is a PPO. And you can see the benefit difference here and the price difference, but, but look at this. The silver plan with a reference-based pricing at $321,000 a year is 106% of the cost of the bronze plan, whereas this silver plan with a PPO costs $419,000 a year. It's 138% price difference over the bronze. So the difference between 106 and 138% is what? 32% roughly price difference between a PPO and a reference-based pricing plan of the same benefit design. That to me 
is very attractive. I mean, if, if all they did was just put in the two silver plans uh, and, and they didn't put in a bronze, they didn't put in a gold plan, they just offered their employees a choice of a sil uh, silver reference-based pricing or silver PPO, this would be the price difference. And in this particular employer's case, they said, we will pay the full cost of this plan, the reference-based pricing plan. If they want a PPO plan, they will pay the cost difference, which is, as you can see, substantial, almost 30% difference. You can imagine what employees would do. Most of them enrolled in the reference-based pricing plan and they, they took their chances that there wouldn't be a problem with their doctors or hospitals. And that's been the case. So again, you know, when you when you look at the pricing effect, uh, the effect of reference-based pricing on the, the plans, you can see some upfront, some attractive numbers. So let me just kind of recap the benefits of reference-based pricing as I've been able to determine them over the last few years. You see lower claim costs, which result in lower premium rates. You see much more transparency in the cost of healthcare. I think that is extremely important. And it has the effect of bending the health care cost curve because providers are now getting fair compensation for their services. It's higher than Medicare. You don't see price gouging and you don't see and it and it tempers this cost shifting that's been going on since 1965 by hospitals uh, shifting the cost from Medicare patients to private insurers. And, and so it tempers that. It doesn't eliminate it entirely, but it begins to take a stab at making it uh, more fair. Uh, because believe me, uh, you know, paying um, 10 times the cost of services versus paying only maybe um, two times the cost of services has a big impact on everybody's costs over the long term. Reference-based pricing works best in the self-funded or level-funded market where the savings go back to the employer and not to the insurer, okay? Now, I'm not gonna sit here and say that some insurance carriers are now trying to use reference-based pricing on their fully insured products. But what I am saying is that if they do that, remember, you know, the savings that they're generating are going into their pockets as profit, whereas if it's in a self-funded deal, that directly comes back to the employer in the form of lower claims. And that to me is, is what employers are, are, are looking for. So if you've got questions, you need additional information, I'm, I'm happy to share them with you. You can reach me up here and I'm, I'm in the Roseville office, uh, Dickerson. You can visit our website, uh, thebrokersga.com, alt funding. Um, and, and if we've got any questions, I'm, I'm happy to take them now. Yes, we have two questions. The very first one is, is there a cap for reference-based pricing or is it completely negotiable? I saw it's, that reference-based price, I'm sorry, it's yeah. a two-part. Um, I saw that reference-based pricing is typically 100 to 200% the Medicare amount. Is there an actual limit or would that just result in an impasse? No, what, what happens is this, you, you, you'll define in your plan document that the reasonable charge is based, and let's just say it's 150% of Medicare, okay? So that's the starting point, okay? You could have it lower than that, you could have it higher than that, but let's just say that this employer is advised to say, let's use 150% of Medicare. So 
so uh, th then the reference-based pricing company says, uh, you, you go to the uh, provider and you say, my plan pays a reasonable cost. It's based on 150% of Medicare. And the provider says, I'm sorry, we, we, we won't accept that. You know, most of them don't do that up front. They just say, okay, fine, you've got insurance, so come on in. And then later they attempt to balance bill the patient for, for what they think they're owed. So what the reference-based pricing company does is it goes back to the provider and says, okay, uh, you're, you're obviously trying to balance bill for anything over this 150%. So uh, are, are, are you willing to accept that or not? And if they say, no, that's just too much, we're not willing to do that, then they negotiate with the provider until they come up with a number uh, that, that both agree to. And sometimes the provider might say, well, we, we need a minimum of 175%, or we need 200%, or maybe we need 225%. The point is, when they arrive at that number, whatever it is, and they agree upon that, they then say, okay, we've, we've got an agreement here, and you will not balance bill the person, and we will see that you are paid 225% of, of uh, Medicare. Yes, that's correct. And then, boom, that's what they do. And the patient doesn't see any of this. The patient doesn't pay the difference or anything. The employer then, uh, you know, generally will agree to say, okay, that's, that's what it takes for this provider, then that's what we'll do. Now, I have seen some employers go back when that happens and say, we want you to know that hospital A wants to charge a lot more than hospital B. And so uh, just be aware of the fact that if you're using hospital A, uh, you may have to pay more uh, in the long run than using hospital B. And, and so they have written that into their plan documents sometimes. So it can get tricky, but generally speaking, uh, there is no cap on, on what the reference-based pricing company will do unless the employer tells them that. And there are a couple of employers out there that might say, we will not go any higher than say 250%. And after that, we, we just won't, we, we won't pay it. Um, those cases could be tricky, but, but, it, but it can happen. I hope that answers the question. And the second question is, who should reach out to local providers to see if they they will accept the reasonable fee? Do they enter into an actual contract to protect from balanced billing or is it informal? Um, well, I think any reaching out should be done by the administrator or the reference-based pricing company, not by, uh, some employers could do it in, depending on their circumstances, but generally that should be done by the TPA or the administrator uh, and the reference-based pricing company. Um, most of the time, they just see they just say, you know, if you agree to accept uh, our, our plan, which which defines reasonable fee as 150% of Medicare, uh, then then we'll be fine with that. Some some providers might come back and say, no, we 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 won't do that, and then they may have the reference-based pricing company contact that provider in advance and say, okay, so what's it going to take for us to, to do this? And then they'll come back to the employer and say, this provider wants 175% as a minimum. And then the employer has to decide, will I do that or not? So, uh, you, know, you know, each community is a little bit different. Obviously, if you have competing providers, then it's more likely that you're going to get uh, better results. But if there's only one provider in town and one hospital, 
uh, that can be that can be tougher. And so the reference-based pricing company might agree to say, we recommend that with this hospital here, uh, we'll pay them 175% because that's what they want. But if they go 15 miles down the road to a different hospital, uh, you know, they'll accept 150%. And then, and then you share that with people and let them know that. I hope that makes sense. Great. Um, okay, so it looks like that is it for our questions. Um, thank you so much, Dave, here um, for this wonderful presentation. And thank you everyone for joining us. We're going to post a link to this webinar on our website within the next 24 hours. And of course, if you have any more questions, you definitely see here how to contact um, Dave here or myself um, as well. Um, but that being said, um, I want everyone, including you, Dave Fear, to have a wonderful day. All right. Thanks a lot. Take care, Natalie. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.